0: Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for all your binge listening pleasure. You can revisit the past hits from the past any time of the day or night. So when you're up in the middle of the night with nothing to do, tune into nhtalkradio.com and enjoy some of the flavor of the deep dive into politics that we do here on Off the Record. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can find us anywhere in the world you may be after traveling on our recently sanitized airlines. We're really pleased to welcome as our guest uh, to Off the Record, Professor Lawrence Douglas. Professor Douglas is the James J. Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College. He's the author of seven nonfiction books, plus two award-winning novels, which I confess I haven't read, but I'm interested in. His most recent book is Will He Go? Trump and the looming electoral meltdown in 2020. It paints a frightening picture of just how close we could be to a total collapse of our political system and our constitutional government in this upcoming next election. And I say frightening because Professor Douglas is the expert that the experts talk to when they want to know just how bad it could get. And he lays out in detail exactly how things could go south and could go south fast. He does it all in a brief, or shall we say concise, 120 pages. So it's a totally gripping read, what my co-host Matt Robeson called democratic reality horror. I recommend it to everyone. And Professor Douglas, we're thrilled to have you here on off the record, welcome.
1: Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, uh, Paul, and with Matt.
0: So we have a lot to talk about. There's, there's an election coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about the future of the country and maybe the free world. So we'll get to those questions as quickly as we can. I, I do have one question. Can you tell me a little bit about your novels? And uh, what are the titles and what were the subjects and, and where can we find them?
1: Well, uh, uh, the novels are not, some, of the, uh, some people ask me whether my novels are legal thrillers because my background is in the law. And uh, I have to say they have absolutely nothing to do with uh, the law whatsoever. Um, I wrote two novels. Uh, the first is called The Catastrophist and the second is called uh, The Vices. And I guess I would describe them as works of uh, psychological realism. And um, and I've always been a, a pretty passionate reader. Um, I continue to be a passionate reader of uh, literary fiction. Um, I'm presently reading, uh, since I can't go anywhere during this COVID pandemic, uh, I'm kind of vicariously enjoying the travel writings of others. So right now I'm reading uh, Flaubert's uh, uh, travel log to his trip in eighteen fifty to egypt um, and uh, I would say the the novels were um, i don 't think they necessarily i haven 't indulged myself by saying they uh, realized the potential of Flaubert 's fiction, but I think they were influenced by it so uh, the uh, Catastrophist is the story of a uh, a man uh, whose life is unraveling both uh, professionally and personally. And the vices is a story about a um about a man trying to reconstruct the life of his closest friend who has uh died under circumstances that make it unclear whether it was an accident or suicide so both um works of i guess uh, psychological realism uh, leavened by some uh Humor, but humor of a decidedly dark variety, I think.
0: And can we find them at your local online retailers?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, for sure.
0: Yeah. Yes. Okay, folks. The catastrophist sounds like a fascinating book. And The Vices also fascinating, written by a professor of social thought. And and actually you know, now that, now that we're in, into this, the catastrophist could be the alternative title for your recent book, Will He Go? Trumping in the looming electrical electri- electoral meltdown in 2020 because as a nation, we are suffering uh, a catastrophe and we are catastrophists in thinking about what could happen. So let's go to what are, uh, you might call your three potential catastrophes. Um, uh, and but let's start at the top. When you say electoral meltdown, what what do you mean? What are we talking about in terms of an electoral meltdown? I mean, come on, this is the United States. Here in New Hampshire, all our all our elections are pristine. We never have any problems. There's no voter fraud. We don't have any hanging chads. We pride ourselves on being the first in the nation primary. It's the Alfred E. Newman approach. What, me, worry?
1: Yeah, well, I think for much of our, of our history, we've been able to have that what, uh, what me, worry uh, approach. And I suppose the, um, we've been able to have that what, me, worry approach through a combination of good luck and good actors, meaning there have been times where the system has been vulnerable to a real crisis, I'm mean, going to think back to the year 2000 and the uh, contested election between George W. Bush and uh, Al Gore, and what I mean by good actors, I mean people who, um, like candidates for higher office, who ultimately put the political interests of the nation ahead of their own uh, personal political fortunes. So for example, even if we think back to 2000, Um, I think if you slot Donald Trump into the position of Al Gore, you would have seen a system seizing up. And by meltdown, that's really what I mean. I mean, a system that no longer is really able to resolve the crisis before it. So, I mean, you can have crises, and the crises might ultimately reach resolution. I mean, if we think back to 1876, the nation experienced a real electoral crisis, crisis. This was during this uh, famous contested election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Uh, And that certainly was a crisis. And it came very close to a meltdown because Congress wasn't able to resolve that problem until two days before inauguration. But ultimately, a solution, as disastrous as it was, a solution was uh, found. But by meltdown, I really mean when the system kind of locks and jams and doesn't seem to be able to kind of work itself out of the uh, crisis that it finds itself in. And I do worry that that is something that could happen. Again, it's obviously not necessarily going to happen, but it could happen in this election season. And actually that's exactly where I wanted to go
2: next. So we've sort of defined the consequences here in terms of a meltdown and how bad it would be. Let's see if we can at least ballpark the risk. Uh, you know, the Boston Globe had a really good article uh, about two weeks ago about uh, a, a bipartisan group of experts getting together to do sort of a war game exercise around the ways that Donald Trump could start to send us down this path to a meltdown. And they found these scenarios to be totally real and totally hard to fix once the disaster starts to unfold. So um, before we get into the scenarios, as Paul alluded to, how would you assess the risk here, the likelihood? How close to the edge are we really?
1: Well, I have a very hard time making the, the assessing that risk. But one thing, and this goes back to something that, the, that Paul said earlier, I suppose I do have a somewhat catastrophic imagination. And I actually taught a course at Amherst College uh, once called uh, The Meaning of Catastrophe. And one of the things that the students read in that course was about um, people who do kind of catastrophic risk assessment. And one of the things they said is that um, if you're going to prepare for a catastrophe, what you have to do is you have to multiply the likelihood of the event against the harm that would happen should the event, uh, event- uh, occur. And so I'm not entirely clear about what the likelihood of the thing is. But given the kind of the magnitude of the damage that could occur should it eventually, then I think we need to be prepared. And the other thing that I I, I think I should mention in response to your question is, um, the thing that I worry about is everything is kind of lined up in a way such that if something start to go wrong, a lot of things could go wrong in kind of lockstep fashion. And that's a problem. So, uh, you know, how likelihood is that the first steps are gonna go wrong? I would say not unlikely, unfortunately. And the thing that I think is dangerous is that, well, once those first things happen, then the other things happen in a kind of, again, sort of uh, not necessarily inevitable, but kind of a lockstep fashion. Um, Finally, maybe I should just mention there was some, um, computer scientist from MIT who was writing about the book and said something like, uh, I think this book has, the, has a 15% chance of being one of the most prescient books ever written in human history. So, um, so I'll take that as, uh, so, you know, maybe 85% chance that, you know, we, we dodge the bullet, but maybe a 15% chance that things go really, really catastrophically wrong.
2: But- yeah, if you're telling me it's one in six that America's over, I- I'm not thrilled. Yeah, I'm not thrilled no. about that. No, that's
1: not. Uh, that's not a source of comfort. I don't but, think so. Either. But wait,
0: a, wait a second. Didn't didn't our founders, in their in their wisdom, in their perspicacity, in their prescient ability to foretell the future, didn't they set up guardrails? Didn't they put in in barriers and protections and mechanisms to Guard against just this kind of eventuality, aren't we? Haven't we, haven't we been, haven't we spent two plus centuries preparing for uh, the the electoral pandemic we face? Are, are not there things in place that 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 protect us from this? Uh,
1: actually, I would say that the guardrails that we have in place are not particularly strong, and that uh, in fact, one of the things I try to point out in the book is that if you talk about the peaceful succession of power, uh, which is, you know, sort of one of the key features of a constitutional democracy and life under the rule of law, I would say that our constitutional system presupposes the peaceful succession of power. It doesn't secure the peaceful succession of power. It doesn't guarantee it. It just kind of assumes that would happen. I mean, for one thing, for example, you might say that, our uh, constitutional system and the executive branch in that constitutional system was designed to make sure that a demagogue would not get elected. Now a demagogue did get elected. And so it's a little bit of like, well, what do we do now? The system is not designed to deal with a demagogue in the Oval Office. The system is designed to make sure that one never gets there in the first place. And once someone has gotten there then suddenly all the mechanisms that were designed to make sure that that didn't happen, they've already failed. And so now we're kind of in a world of hurt. And the question is, well, what then kind of, where did the restraints come from? And I'm certainly not the only one to observe this. Many others have observed it as well, that some of the restraints are just meant to become, they're they're kind of the norms of the system. central actors in our political apparatus are supposed to be dedicated to the basic norms of constitutional democracy. And if they um, violate those norms or ignore them, they're meant to pay a political price. And what we've seen in the case of Donald Trump, which I think is exceptionally uh, disturbing, is one that not only has he pushed against these normative guardrails of democracy, he's just kind of smashed through them. He's just kind of ignored these normative guardrails. And then, perhaps even more disturbing than that is he hasn't paid a political price for doing so. That uh, Republican part, uh, that uh, Republican lawmakers have been willing to shield him uh, in doing actions that, um, you know, in an earlier time in our in our history, I think would have been considered intolerable.
0: So uh, we're talking. So I know awful. we've got to
1: go to a break.
2: Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead, Paul. I was about to I was about to do a radio tease. You go, yeah. you go right to it.
0: Before you tease, uh, we're talking with Lawrence Douglas, the Professor, uh, the James J. Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College. Uh, He's got a new book about the looming electoral meltdown in 2020. We're talking about how we got to where we are and what we might be facing, what, if anything, can or cannot be done about it. Um, We're uh, engaging in some uh, fun fun, fun times with catastrophe. We have talked a little bit about the guardrails. And Matt, before you tease your question, the second half of that question, which I want to tease uh, when we come back from a break, is what's happened over the past four years to get to where we've got uh, that uh, Donald Trump did uh, to put us in the situation we're in. Folks, don't go away. Uh, we're going to horrify you for the next 30 minutes uh, here on Off the Record. We'll be right back. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We're a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes, and... Matt and I are talking with Professor Lawrence Douglas, the James J. Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College. He is the author of books of non-fiction, two award-winning novels. His most recent book, Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. We're talking catastrophic scenarios for the American democracy. We've talked about a number of things before we get to the actual catastrophes that we're going to face. And before the break, I teased this question. So Professor, in the first half of your book, you laid out in a really clear way how Trump has laid the groundwork for the total meltdown of our country over the last four years um, by undermining democratic norms, faith in the electoral system, and the ways we're supposed to protect our democracy from hostile foreign powers. Can you give our listeners just a flavor of what that was about. How did we get here? How did that happen?
1: Well, I, again, I mean, I, you know, uh, we can go back to how it is that he uh, won the Oval Office. And, um, and obviously part of those things were, it was a kind of, uh, you know, kind of one of these uh, bad jokes of history. And uh, part of it also had to do with, um, you know, deformations in American politics that we've seen for, for years in the making. And probably one of the things that um, has most um, facilitated the rise of Trump is this incredibly siloed uh, social media universe in which we inhabit. Um, uh, You could imagine uh, earlier presidents, you know, someone like uh, uh, President Nixon, probably also trying to um, tell many, many lies in an effort to kind of protect his presidency. And yet, at that time, we obviously had a curated uh, media universe in which you had a number of, um, uh, you know, just a handful of media outlets that would uh, place the news in a kind of coherent normative framework, whereas Trump has been able to rely on these megaphones uh, in the right-wing media for, uh, to repeat and amplify his uh, falsehoods. And, uh, and that's just an incredibly, um, yeah, it's a dangerous state of, uh, of affairs. And uh, it's also, you know, when you talk about our First Amendment tradition, you know, obviously we have a very powerful free speech tradition in this country for which we can be very proud. And we're willing to tolerate all sorts of fringe speech, hate speech, uh, speech which is arguably uh, defamatory of all sorts of institutions and practices. But the idea behind that system is that the speech comes from fringe groups. And uh, our constitutional system really wasn't uh, supposed to have to deal with a situation in which the main source of defamatory and false speech is the White House itself. Uh, That's a very destabilizing thing. And we've seen that Trump is incredibly effective. I mean, he's incredibly effective at at undermining any kind of investigation of his uh, acts of malfeasance. I mean, we've seen that he was extremely uh, successful in undermining uh, Mueller's investigation and we were, we saw how effective he was in undermining um in undermining the impeachment inquiry um and it's all part of a kind of i think a, a pattern of abuse of office and maybe one of the most uh iron uh, one of the biggest ironies of his presidency is what makes him now a vulnerable candidate and a very vulnerable candidate is not the pattern of abuse That we've seen for the last three and a half years, but it's actually the failure to engage in the most basic act of a presidency, which is to lead Uh, this kind of epic failure of leadership uh, in response to the pandemic. That's what has made him vulnerable, not uh, this pattern of abuse of office. He was able to weather that with uh, disturbing ease.
2: So now, as threatened, we're going to get to the part of the show Called the catastrophes. We're gonna we're gonna try and walk through the three catastrophes that uh, Professor Douglas lays out in his book. And look, I, I want everyone listening to the show to go out and buy the book, so I don't want to you know give away the plot too much. But I'd love to just go through them in sequence here. Paul and I can 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 try and lob them up for you, uh, and just give uh, just give our listeners a flavor of what we're talking about in each of these scenarios. So I- I'll dive into catastrophe number one, which you call faithlessness. Now, this gets us into some of the quirky twilight zone of electoral college rules and how those electoral college votes are counted. Um, and there's a lot of wonky stuff in here, but you managed to zoom through it in a really crisp, clear way in about 17 pages. So in a nutshell, what does this scenario look like? What's, what's
1: catastrophe number one? So uh, obviously everything just kind of presupposes that Trump will be willing to contest an electoral loss And my argument is that he will be able to gain traction in that contestation if he loses by a narrow margin. That's the danger, a narrow loss. Uh, And one way in which he could experience a narrow loss is as a result of uh, electors um, acting faithlessly. And remember, we have this uh, anachronistic, arguably dysfunctional system of electing a president through the Electoral College. And uh, the Electoral College Uh, you know, it actually consists of real people who uh, cast votes. uh, And they're supposed to, of course, cast votes um, in accordance with the popular vote outcome of the state in which they're in in happening. Um, But nothing necessarily requires or or binds them to do so. Now, many of your uh, listeners might recall that the Supreme Court recently uh, rendered a decision which upheld the constitutionality of laws that bind electors. So you might say that, oh, well, the problem of an elector going rogue has now been checked. And by going rogue, I mean that, for example, in uh, the 2016 election, so we have 538 electoral college votes in the United States. Of those 538 in 2016, seven electors just simply went their own way. Uh, actually three more tried and were uh, for particular reasons, they weren't able to do so. So 10 basically tried and seven succeeded in going their own way. Now, when they went their own way, they had no effect on the overall outcome of the election uh, because Trump had a sufficient electoral majority. But if you go back again to this election of 2000, the Al Gore, George W. Bush election, um, George W. Bush got 271 electoral college votes you need 270 to get elected. So he had, a, you know, he had a margin of two votes. If you had seven people going rogue back then, uh, you arguably would have had a total electoral crisis back in the year uh, 2000. And the current Supreme Court decision, all it does is say that states can bind elector- electors. Uh, 18 states don't currently bind electors. And of the 32 states um, plus the District of Columbia, which do bind electors right now, and those laws, again, seem to be uh, constitutional. um, Of those 32, 17 of them simply say, we're binding you. That is, there is no uh, penalty for failure to act faithfully. And there's no mechanism of replacement if they don't act faithfully. So again, we, we have this bizarre system that leaves ourselves vulnerable to persons who you know, arguably could be um, blackmailed by a foreign adversary. We don't know why people would act faithlessly, but it's certainly possible to imagine them doing so. And over our history, we've had about 170 um, electors uh, act faithlessly.
0: So, catastrophe number two, in our catastrophist agenda. Um, this one's pretty scary. Um, and you call it the great hack attack. Um, and how could that happen? Can you walk us through what happens with this one?
1: Well, we know that our electoral system is vulnerable. And not just our electoral system, but the power grid which the electoral system can be dependent on. It is vulnerable. and. Uh, Um, And again, we should bear in mind, this isn't some professor entertaining, bizarro conspiracy theories. I mean, the American intelligence uh, agencies have established that, for example, Russia has uh, penetrated our uh, our electrical grid and has concluded that uh, Russia arguably remains within our electrical grid. And and we know that uh, some of our electoral systems, are vulnerable to hack. I mean, one thing that we need to bear in mind, um, I was recently asked a question by a foreign correspondent who was saying, well, what are the federal laws about uh, the electoral system? How how, uh, does the federal government create these uh, uh, electoral machines and distribute them to states? And it's like, when I stopped laughing, again, I pointed out, we don't have a system like that. It's all left up to states. So states have some really vulnerable antiquated uh, systems. And because our electoral system with the Electoral College places all this emphasis on the outcome of swing states, our system is only as secure as the weakest link within these swing states. And so if you imagine that in this coming election, Michigan is our big swing state. Uh, So, the outcome, so goes Michigan, so goes the country. If we imagine on election day, uh, Wayne County in in Michigan, where Detroit is, uh, experiencing some kind of major power outage or major malfunction of their electoral uh, machines, their election machines, you can imagine hundreds of thousands of Detroit voters being disenfranchised, being unable to vote on election day. We could imagine, as a result of that, Trump appears to win Michigan again because of this overwhelmingly Democratic area being unable to uh, go to the, unable to uh, cast votes, and uh, and then the question is, well, what's the remedy to something like that? What if you have seven hundred thousand people in the Detroit area, unable to vote on election day? What's the remedy? And the answer is. We don't know because we haven't really planned for that kind of thing. Is it a revote just in Wayne County or Detroit? Is it a revote in the whole state? Is it a revote in the entire country? These things just, there's no laws that tell us exactly what the answer to that is. And again, it just makes us incredibly vulnerable, especially when we're thinking of the backdrop of a president who will be out there tweeting saying, uh, look, I won re-election on November 3rd. To hell with November, uh, to hell with uh, Wayne County. Uh, they're just making up cons, they're, they're blaming everything on the Russians when it was their own pathetic uh, failure to get their power system, uh, you know, up to, to snuff. Uh,
0: because, because I occasionally visit this show, this is Vladimir Putin, yes, I just yes. want to say I've been listening with great interest to all your ideas, These are ideas which are not unknown to me or foreign. And I think Detroit better watch out because the lights could go out on November 2nd and stay out for a very long time because there's nothing worth saving in Detroit anyway. Nobody will pay any attention. And when it's all over, you know, I have my guy. So thank you very much for your ideas. I will visit you again after this thing is in real shambles and we can talk about how Russia will run United States from now on. Thank you. I'm leaving you now. Hacking is over.
2: Thank you, Vladimir. Um, Paul, uh, now that Vladimir's uh, intrusion into the show uh, has been uh, successfully capped, tell me, do I have enough time to uh, set up Professor Douglas for catastrophe number three if he does it in a fast drive-by? Or do we got to go to break?
0: No, you have approximately three minutes.
2: All right. Professor Douglas, I know we're we're doing a fast drive-by here. But let's see if we can squeeze in catastrophe number three. I love this one. Um, You call it, you you, you took uh, this term from uh, another scholar, blue shift, um, nerd alert. I love that. It's a great play on an astrophysics term, uh, red shift. Um, But this one really pointed out something you were beginning to talk about uh, with catastrophe number two, which is perceptions and how um, in this period, uh, in this unusual election, this period after election day, perceptions are going to start to set in, and that's going to really open up a uh, possibility for a lot of Trumpian skullduggery. So what's this blue shift scenario all about?
0: Let me so interrupt. Is- Let me, I'm going to interrupt because yeah. I think that this is going to deserve enough time so that we'll take a break now so that we don't have to cut you off. Folks, we're talking um, with Professor Lawrence Douglas, Uh, the James J. Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College. He is an author. He has written a book, Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. We are running through disastrous catastrophic scenarios for electrical electrical and electoral meltdown. We've been hacked by Vladimir Putin once, uh, because that's what is going to happen in this upcoming election. We're gonna take a short break so that everybody can go drink some borscht in honor of the Russian hack of the upcoming election. And we'll be back after this so that Professor Douglas can answer Matt's question about the third catastrophe, the blue shit. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live on the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. And we are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking today with Professor Lawrence Douglas, the James J. Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College. Among his works is a new book, Will He Go?, Trump in the looming electoral meltdown in 2020. We've been talking about how we got to the precipice, the brink of electoral catastrophe. We've talked about a couple of catastrophic possibilities already. Before the break, Matt asked him about the so-called blue shift, which Professor Douglas has coined as a term, a play on the term redshift from astrophysics astrophysics about how votes are counted and how long the count will take and what opportunities for Trumpian skullduggery may be opened up. So, Professor, following up on Max's question, what skullduggery awaits us in the blue shift?
1: Well, Paul, let me just uh, preface it by saying, uh, much as I'd love to take credit for this incredibly clever term, uh, credit actually does go to uh, My colleague, Ned Foley at Ohio State University, Uh, he's an electoral expert, and he's the one uh, who actually came up with that term. And uh, the only thing that I did was, uh, instead of um, borrowing from the allusion to astrophysics, I called it big blue shift by Mm -hmm. showing my um, fidelity to uh, New York Giants football team. But anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, the blue shift, this is the one which I really think we should worry about. This is something where I think is, is, should be a source of huge concern, because the blue shift focuses on the fact that mail-in ballots and provisional ballots, uh, when they are counted, and they tend, again, they're usually counted after election day, they tend to break democratic, uh, because the people who rely on these ballots tend to be in, um, in urban areas and urban areas vote overwhelmingly Democratic. And the reason I think we really need to be concerned about this one is because we've seen Trump engaging in all these preemptive strikes against mail-in ballots and trying to discredit them. I mean, we've seen this kind of, this parade of tweets that he has, issued in the last week saying that this uh, election is gonna be the most corrupt in human history, that the mail-in ballots are gonna be affected by fraud, it's all gonna be a hoax. And we have to ask ourselves, why is he so obsessed with these mail-in ballots? And I think again, the reason he's so obsessed with them is he knows that given this pandemic, that there are going to be huge volumes of mail-in ballots. And again, the people who are gonna be most interested in avoiding the health risk associated with in-person voting are going to be people in these densely populated urban areas, areas that vote overwhelmingly Democratic. And so by trying to attack the integrity of these mail-in ballots, in a sense, he's trying to attack the integrity of ballots for, Demo- for that are going to really break for Biden. And the thing that I think makes this really a, uh, a disturbing scenario is, uh, let me quote from the master himself, from, from President Trump, if I may. So last week, a lot of people were all up in arms about this tweet that he issued about possibly delaying the election, and that tweet didn't really bother me all that much. We all know that he can't delay the election; that just uh, that is not something that he's the, the power to do. But the same day, that same day, he issued another tweet that was largely overlooked. And this is a tweet, I'm just gonna quote from him. He says, must know election results on the night of the election, not days, months, or even years later. Because I think what Trump recognizes is his best chance of winning is to say that, is to have a lead on November 3rd. And he could have a lead on November 3rd, particularly if the election turns on the results in these handful of swing states. Because on November 3rd, you're going to have tens of millions of ballots that are going to favor Biden that haven't been counted yet. And again, his best chance of insisting that he's been reelected and his best chance of undercutting uh, Biden's victory is by saying, we have to go with the November 3rd results. We can't accept the results that are going to be trickling in over days and weeks. And we should also bear in mind, there is no doubt that the counting of this huge volume of mail-in ballots is going to seriously tax our system. It's going to mean that, you know, I think we often have this kind of uh, um, Kentucky Derby approach to election eve where we kind of think, you know, by the time we go to sleep, we're going to know who the next president is. It might be days or weeks before we know the final result of the election because of this huge volume of, of, um, of mail-in ballots. And that will just create opportunities for Trump from November 3rd forward saying, I've been reelected. And then here's the more dangerous thing. Once these mail-in ballots start being counted, and once Biden uh, starts to, um, uh, and once we see Trump's lead erode and Biden now take the lead, Trump will say that's simply confirmation of everything I've been saying all along. I've been saying this for months, that the mail-in ballots are going to be corrupted by the Democrats and lo and behold, my predictions are coming true. And that I think is, uh, that's a a situation we need to be worried about.
0: So uh, my, uh, very intelligent co-host, Matt Robison, who writes for the Alternate and also, by the way, folks, has a blog, a moreperfectunionforum.com, which is must blogging for everybody. Uh, last week, wrote an article called Democrats have to win two battles to unseat Trump, and here's how they can do it. It talks about the work of various smart people like you, Professor, and features your book, and then lays out 12 steps, what Matt calls a democracy dozen for how Democrats can win the fight after election day to count the votes and protect the result. So I want to ask about a few of these. For example, um, Matt uh, does uh, not talk about calling out the army to to protect us. Uh, or the Air Force, or the Marines. But he does suggest that public communications and expectations are important. Things like prepping voters for a long election month or months, uh, not just election day, explaining blue shift and getting voters to vote as early as possible. Do you think steps like these can help fend off some of the potential catastrophes we're talking about? Or is this just a lot of um, uh, throwing uh, throwing rice up in the wind.
1: Well, I don't think it's throwing uh, rice up in the wind, and you know, I think uh, Matt and I had this conversation. I think uh, I, so I actually have said many of the, the same exact things. I think they would be help, uh, healthy. Um, I'm not sure if they're necessarily going to be sufficient in order to avoid uh, a problem, but it certainly would be helpful. It would be very helpful. Uh, help. It would be very healthy and helpful if uh, the John Kings of the world, you know, on election Eve, uh, told Americans that, uh, you know, in all likelihood, we will not know the results. And the fact that we will not know the results tonight is not an uh, indication that the system is failing. The system could be functioning exactly properly, but given these unusual circumstances of this huge volume of, of votes, they need to be counted. So the fact that we don't know is not an example. It's not uh, evidence that the system has been hacked or that the system is corrupt or that the system's unreliable. It's simply a consequence of the system having to deal with unusual circumstances of voting during a pandemic. Um, So I think things like that will be helpful. Uh, But again, we need to bear in mind that uh, Trump is going to be out there tweeting uh, that he has won based on his lead on November 3rd. And unfortunately, uh, whereas the John Kings of the world might be reminding uh, viewers in a responsible fashion, um, the Sean Hannity's of the world might be failing to do that. And so we, again, might find uh, Trump's uh, allegations or Trump's uh, insistence that he's won, finding resonance and amplification by his his megaphones in the right-wing media. By the way, for
2: people who are contemplating picking up the book, it's worth reading just to see how Professor Douglas mimics so accurately Donald Trump's tweets. He invents a whole bunch of them throughout the course of the book, and it's really completely indistinguishable from the real thing in in, in an almost uh, frightening way. Um, So I want to talk a little bit um, about some of the opportunities that Democrats might have um, you know, the, the, the chance to pass some COVID relief legislation seems to be dicey as of this hour. We're recording this on a Thursday. Uh, we don't know if it's going to be in a total impasse. But Democrats have certainly been trying to insert into that legislation, which is really the last must-leave train, uh, leaving the station in D.C. before the election, some mechanisms to protect the election. Now you had suggested when we spoke uh, in the run-up to that article um, some really creative um, things that Trump might do. Um, he might deploy ICE raids on Election Day to intimidate Latinx voters. Um, he might, uh, you know, he, he, he might try to uh, uh, undermine um, uh, the ways in which uh, people go to the polls um, th- through his tweets. Are there are there any things? The one that really scares me, by the way, you alluded to a second ago, is he's put a head of the United States Postal Service um, in place who is slowing down um, mail service. And so uh, I saw recently that in Philadelphia, mail delivery can be delayed up to three weeks. Well, turns out that's a pretty strong Democratic turnout state and a pretty important uh, city and a pretty important swing state. So if you were to pick, just one thing that Democrats could do in this uh, hopefully upcoming piece of legislation, what would you want to see them do? What would be the most important thing that they could put in place um, that might prevent one of these electoral
1: catastrophes? Well, I think one thing would, that would be incredibly helpful, though they're probably not going to be able to do it because it would require bipartisan support, And of course, it's not in the Republicans' interest to uh, support any of these uh, measures that would guarantee that all mail-in ballots get counted. And one thing that would be is to kind of simply, uh, again, they don't really have the authority to do this because it's all left to the states. But I wish it was the case that uh, we could somehow federalize our election system in a way that also mandates to the states that they accept all a mail-in ballots that are received by, again, let's make it up a week after election day or so, or two weeks after election day. Uh, again, it will slow dramatically down uh, the count of mail-in ballots, but it would be a-, a very helpful thing because one thing we're going to see, and we've already seen it right now, we just saw today in the news that uh, Trump uh, is trying to uh, challenge Nevada's um, Uh, Mailing out of mail-in ballots to uh, registered voters—all this stuff is going to be tied up in litigation. And again, it's in his interest to litigate this stuff. It's in his interest to drag things out because, again, it will permit him uh, to—it will permit him to rely heavily on his narrative that we need to rely on the November third results. And the kind of things that he can litigate, I mean, this is one of the things you just mentioned, Matt. I mean, we usually think of the postmaster general as one um, uh, officer of the government, which is not politicized. I mean, you could politicize everything else, but postmaster general, but here we see a politicized postmaster general. And one of the things is, you know, in these uh, state laws, the states say that um, mail and ballots have to be postmarked by a certain day. Some states do it by postmark. A lot of mail doesn't have postmarks on it. We don't know when things have been postmarked. So the idea of relying on the postmark as the defining criterion uh, of eligibility for vote to be counted, uh, that just is an invitation to litigation and to slowing things down. And the slower the process, the more litigated it is, the more chaotic it is. And chaos plays to Donald, Str- uh, Donald Trump's strengths.
0: Well, Professor Lawrence Douglas, James J. Grossfeld, Professor of Law Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College, has been with us on Off the Record, his most recent book, Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. Professor, thank you for scaring the daylights out of me. I've been around politics for a long time and I have never contemplated the kind of mess that we are in now. I cannot imagine a more perfect confluence of disastrous circumstances than a pandemic, a narcissistic, sociopathic uh, supposed leader with nothing to lose and everything to gain who probably hates the job, but doesn't want to give up power because he doesn't want to be indicted. And so he has plenty of motive to mess with our elections, and he's doing everything he can. And you've laid it out in your book and on this show in horrifying detail. So, so you let's just call you the Stephen King of electoral politics. We really appreciate your being here to send shivers and shudders through us and our listeners.
1: Well, thanks so much, uh, Paul and Matt. It's been a pleasure um, scaring the daylights out of you.
0: And this is Off the Record, Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. We'll be back to wrap up this week's edition in just a moment. Don't go away. We'll scare the daylights out of you. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Well, Matt, all I can say is you've really done it this time, Ali. Uh, what a frightening scenario. The professor led us through Lawrence Douglas, who seems to be able to envision every possible electoral catastrophe and with a little bit of help about what we can do about it, we, we have some things to worry about, Matt.
2: I plan to take the advice of the philosopher Blutarsky and start drinking heavily. I agree with
0: you. So here we are on Off the Record. We're signing off for this week. Thanks to our sponsors who keep the station on the air. Thanks to our listeners. We hope we've scared the electoral daylights out of you. Get your absentee ballots now. They're available here in New Hampshire in various forms from your county clerk. You can find lots of websites that tell you how to do it. If you're going to vote absentee, please do it now and get your ballots in so that we know they can be counted. Um, And if you're planning to uh, vote on November 3rd, uh, make sure you wear your mask, wash your hands, keep socially distanced, but vote. Please, people, vote. That's the important thing. It's off the record. We'll be back next week. See you later.